could you pray to have your... No, it's not about that. (laughs) (laughs) It cuts me off immediately. Hey, I'm Mairead. And I'm Harry. And this is A for Effort. The show where we each bring three words or concepts that the other person doesn't know or hasn't heard of or has heard of but still doesn't know. (laughs) And they have to guess what they mean, considering the fact that they're based on a theme of some kind. Yep. Sounds clear to me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, This week... I will say my words first. Cool. Yeah. Way to take charge. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so my theme this week is deep work. I have no idea what deep work means. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Is it like my first impression was that it was like research that pushes the boundaries of what we know? It's the ability to focus without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. Okay. You know how you like never hear a phrase and then suddenly you hear it like a thousand times in five minutes? (laughs) That's how I feel about deep work right now, which sounds to me like the more I hear it, the more it sounds completely made up. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so my first term is the deep work hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with how deep work relates to your ability to produce value in an economy. Okay, so the deep work hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Would this be the hypothesis that deep work is more valuable than shallow work to the economy? Yes, Newport postulates that, but what about deep work makes it more valuable? The fact that it requires focus and little distraction. It's kind of a long task as opposed to kind of many short, easy tasks. And so what would be more likely to come out of that kind of work? (laughs) I feel like... You know, the other terms I think are are better, but we are off to a rough yeah, start. It's like, so guess <laughs> the hypothesis of this scholar. <laughs> I got this book, it's called Deep Work. What's it about? <laughs> okay, my next term is Pythagorean theory. <laughs> guess You it. don't know what those words mean. There's this guy named, all I'm going to say is it's about triangles. <laughs> Okay, well, the deep work hypothesis <laughs> is that deep work is becoming increasingly rare. Okay, okay, that makes and sense. And is able to produce high-value work mm-hmm. in an information economy, which makes it more valuable. So it's increasingly rare because there are so many attention detractors. Sure. And it produces high-value output, which then makes it more valuable because it's less common. So it's valuable both because it produces value. Yes. And second, because it's rare. It's valuable. And and then that's heightened by... Supply and demand. Yes. I mean, it's more valuable. Yes. So basically, what he says in this book called Deep Work is that deep work is good. (laughs) I'm going to write this whole book about how this concept I just made up isn't good. It's called Deep Work. (laughs) Stay away. (laughs) Stay away. Do you want to summarize? The deep work hypothesis is the hypothesis that deep work is in itself valuable in an information economy and because of its relative scarcity in a world in which there are so many attention detractors, that value is heightened. Yeah. All right. Cool. My next term is... Deep work. (laughs) Hypothesis. (laughs) Yeah. The deep work theory. (laughs) 
Okay. My next term is the any benefit approach to network tool selection. So the any benefit approach to network tool selection. Yep. So network tool. It's kind of a tool used to build a network or create or maintain mm -hmm. or take advantage of a network. Mm -hmm. um, and there's an approach to selecting what tool is best and that approach is the any benefit approach. So when selecting some kind of tool that can be used to enhance, maintain, or take advantage of a network, all benefits are equally useful? No. No? It's I, something that mm -hmm. Newport yeah. doesn't endorse. He doesn't endorse this idea. Correct. His belief is that in terms of selecting a network tool, there are optimal benefits. Yeah, do you want me to... Yes, please. So Newport calls social media and infotainment sites, like sure. BuzzFeed or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, network Reddit, tools. Network tools. So the any benefit approach mm -hmm. to those network tools. To selecting those network tools? Yeah, to using those network oh, okay. tools. Oh, okay, okay, I see, I see. Po posits that if you get any benefit from using them... Then they're worthwhile. Then they're worthwhile. Oh. But Newport disagrees with that. Um, I see. He proposes what he calls a craftsman approach, mm -hmm. which is just taking into account the tool's impact on your core values and then whether that's positive or negative. So a tool's use isn't justified by having any benefit. It should have specific benefits. Essentially perform a cost-benefit analysis yeah. and choose a tool that has a positive return on your investment mm -hmm. in the realm of factors that are important to you. Yeah. And this is part of his larger point that these kinds of things are attention detractors from deep work, which is good. Yeah. Okay. And that if you value doing deep work yeah. and you find yourself constantly on Twitter, you might want to think about what are the actual benefits that Twitter is imparting Yeah. Okay. with respect to your work or things that Yes, with respect to, you. to your goals. Yeah. The third term <laughs> is fixed schedule productivity. Okay. Um... Is this kind of a theory, a belief, a proof, uh, you know, an argument? Uh, is it's it an true? approach. It's an approach. Okay. Is it the approach that you can increase your productivity through creating a fixed schedule of when you will work and not work? Yep. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for that one. <laughs> yeah, so you set, the, you set parameters on your scheduling in advance, and then you fit your work yes. into that preset schedule mm -hmm. with the idea that it pushes you to be more discriminating within your time limitations yeah. because it's not like, oh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm faffing about now. <laughs> it's not like, oh, yes, I'm wasting time. That common <laughs> phrase. <laughs> it's not like, oh, I'm wasting time now at 1 p.m., but it's fine because I'll just stay yeah. after 5. Mm -hmm. You're like, no, I'm leaving at 5. So, so I have to get I have before to done do now. now. Yeah. Newport also talks about asymmetrically culling shallow tasks. Mm-hmm. All right, that is the end of round one. And now comes round two. <laughs> I will say my terms. My theme is religion in medieval England. Okay. When is medieval England? So specifically, this is going to be Reformation England. Okay. So like around 1500. Okay, cool. 1500 to mid-16th century. 
1500 to mid 1500s then? yeah yeah exactly okay. but i want <laughs> strange just to make sure. yeah yeah so the year 1500 to the mid 16th century what does it mean Ooh, <laughs> yeah. i hope you know what you're worth so uh the year 1500 to the early 16th century <laughs> yeah the year 1515 to about 80 years before the beginning of the 17th century <laughs> <laughs> okay perfect so number one yep religious time so uh, and this doesn't mean I'd like to point out, like, oh, it's religious time. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> like hammer time. Yeah, yeah. Like Stop. Yeah. Religious, religious time. time. <laughs> More like abstract. Yes, I figured. What it brings to mind is geologic time. Mm-hmm. And geologic time is a very broad time scale. Mm-hmm. So you're not looking at individual years. You're okay. looking at epics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not that either. I didn't think it was geologic no, time. No, no, but, but I mean, it's not that concept of time <laughs> is it geologic time <laughs> yeah the answer is a deep work <laughs> <laughs> okay uh <laughs> it's not grouping of time no okay is it human history as told by or marked by religious occurrences no it's more about like an organization of time like how one organizes one's time okay so if it's about the organization of time in a religious sense is it the way that you allocate your time throughout a given day to religious tasks? Kind of. You're close enough. Do you want me to? Yeah. So basically, it's the idea that time is organized by religion okay. in this society. Got it. So that the phrase in my in the reading was, the secular clock is organized by religious time. Okay. So yeah. like what the weekend was, what when holidays were, what you did in the morning, what you did during the day, when you went to church, all that stuff. Like your life was organized by religious time as opposed to today when it's organized by like economic time or whatever. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Yeah, I do. So to summarize religious time, essentially religion was given primacy in the society and then time is organized around yeah. those religious Exactly. Like one's conception of how one organized one's life in terms of time was through religion. Yeah. All right. All right. Cool. Sick. Nice. (laughs) All right. My next one is indulgence. Okay. Well, to indulge in something is usually associated with treating yourself to something in some way. Yes. So an indulgence. You can indulge Mm -hmm. and treat yourself to something like something delicious uh, that you normally wouldn't. You can also indulge someone else. Mm. As in, listen patiently and allow them yes. to express themselves. So if this helps, indulgences were granted. Is it the ability to do something that would otherwise be considered sinful or otherwise be disallowed within the church because of some exceptional circumstance? Kind of, but not really. Okay. <laughs> Is it kind of like a moral calculus where if you do one good thing, then you get granted the ability to do things that are disallowed? Kind of, but not really again. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Okay. So you either have a partial or a plenary indulgence. Partial being obviously partial. Plenary (laughs) meaning absolute of all. Okay. And it means that if you do a certain thing, you would be granted the fact that you no longer need to be punished for your sins. So a plenary indulgence would be granted to crusaders, meaning that when they died, they would go straight to heaven. (laughs) Ha. Yeah. Good idea, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So a partial indulgence would be if you do this good thing or a lot of the time or like if you, you know, gave this amount of money to the church or if you bought this big monastery, Mm -hmm. you'd be granted a partial indulgence to the extent that you wouldn't have to go through whatever punishment you would potentially have to. to In the afterlife. Yeah. So this is a period of time when purgatory existed. Yeah. Where you would go for like X number of years. Right. To kind of burn off your sin and then you'd go to heaven. 
But if you did this stuff, you would be granted an indulgence. And also, you could be granted indulgence in the afterlife by people praying for you while you were in purgatory. Okay. And so is this taking place within Catholicism? Yes. And if so, follow up, is some of this kind of flawed logic undermining the holiness of the idea of God, what then leads to the Reformation Def- and Calvinism? Yeah. This kind of thing. Well, yeah, Lutheranism, mm-hmm. Calvinism, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. All that, because the, they're like, you're, you're super corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> this is a large part of the perceived corruption in the Catholic Church is this right. kind of thing. Not in terms of crusaders. The crusade is considered a universally good thing okay. by Christians at this time in Christendom, quote, unquote, unquote, okay. unquote, unquote. <laughs> I must must express that that's not my opinion at all. That but it's not your opinion that the crusade was a good thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Did, I would like to point out that. Yes. <laughs> but in terms of rich people giving money for indulgences, there was one specific example that I can't remember. But of a very – I think it was like a banking family gave money to the church because they needed money to build something or like do repairs. So they organized this kind of indulgence bond where if you gave them money as a loan, they would grant this kind of indulgence. You would be able to go to heaven. Yeah. So yeah, that's an indulgence. Okay. So an indulgence could be partial or plenary Mm -hmm. and it was in return for doing some act, you were then granted forgiveness either partially or fully in the afterlife for other sins. Yeah, for all or some of your sins. Got it. Yeah. All right. So my last term, which you may have heard before, (laughs) transubstantiation. Okay. So substantiation, substance, something having substance, Mm -hmm. something existing physically. Sure. Transubstantiation, the transfer of substance. (laughs) Is it like reincarnation? No. (laughs) Okay. It's a thing that you have to believe. It's like a fundamental tenet of the church. Okay. That this happens. Okay. During Um, a certain thing, specifically in like a church. Okay. Does it, does it, yes. Um, Does it have to do with the spirit of God (laughs) imparting to the wine and bread? Ooh, yes. Yeah. But, but, But what specifically happens? Is it when the like, what is the wine the, and bread supposed to be? Right. The body and blood of Christ. Yes. So in mass, what happens? Right. So then the priest, like, does, says something <laughs> with their hand. <laughs> yes. Yeah, says something over. Yeah. So, like, this is my body. Give it for you. Eat this in remembrance of me is maybe the line. And then mm-hmm. it's like. Well, it, and then this time it would have been in Latin behind a screen where no one could hear or see it. And And so the idea is that. In the priest doing that thing, that endows the food and drink with the spirit of? Mm-mm, even more than that. What is it supposed to be? Uh, it makes it blood and body. Literally. Wow. So the principle of transubstantiation is that when the priest does that, yeah, the bread literally becomes the body of Christ. The wine literally becomes the blood of Christ. <sighs> it's like it's it's so the point is that every time you go to mass, yep. he's performing a miracle. And so there's a lot of conflict mm-hmm. within the church and then after the reformation between the church and other people and then within those other splinter groups about to what extent it actually happened, whether it was figurative, whether it wasn't. Right. But don't they then it- eat it and drink it they eat it and drink it yes yeah. i, yeah. I yeah. bet the cannibals in the crowd were like <laughs> <laughs> like yeah hey cannibals in the crowd raise your hand <laughs> 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 they actually raised somebody else's hand yeah <laughs> <laughs> raise the arm you're eating yeah. <laughs> right so the idea of transubstantiation is that the priest in performing some rite over bread and wine mm-hmm. in latin behind a screen where no one could see it in medieval europe was actually turning the bread and wine into 
the body of Christ and the blood of Christ for people to then partake in. The significance being that the priest is performing a miracle, presumably driven by and legitimizing the existence of God. Yes. So people saying this wasn't true, yeah, like pre-1500 and also in some places, were burned to the death. Dang. Yeah. So, you know, we would have been burned. Yes. For a lot of reasons. uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. All right. That is the end of round two. Do you have your scores ready? Oh, yeah. Okay, so for deep work hypothesis, I gave you two out of five. Thank you. For any benefit approach, I gave you three out of five. For fixed schedule productivity, I gave you five out of five. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you do that. (laughs) Charitable. Okay, it's charitable. (laughs) Yeah. All right, for religious time, I gave you four out of five. Cool. For indulgence, I gave you three out of five. Cool. And for transubstantiation, I gave you zero out of five. That's a joke, (laughs) five out of five. Oh, wow, thank you. No problem. All right, cool. So you got ten out of five. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) wow. You got (laughs) ten. 200% 200% for you. Yeah, can I bank some of those points for later? <laughs> you got 10 out of 15. You got 12 out of 15. Okay, cool. All right. If you want to learn more about deep work, I would highly recommend the book written by Cal Newport, Deep Work. That link will be in the show notes in addition to an interview between Ezra Klein and Cal Newport, which is how I originally found out about the book. And Ezra Klein, the Ezra Klein show is one of my favorite podcast. It's a great show. It's great. I would highly recommend it. He's a great guy. Fantastic discourse. He is so incisive. If you'd like to read more about my terms, you can read New Worlds, Lost Worlds, The Rule of the Tudors by Susan Brigden, which is very interesting. Gives a very good overview of the the English society during Tudor Britain. Okay, cool. A for Effort is hosted and produced by me, Mairead. And me, Harry. And is edited by me, Mairead. And not me, Harry. Our music is Chop Shop Instrumental by White Flowers, and our logo is by Eights. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us on Facebook. Just put in the search bar, A for Effort. If you'd like to email us, we're at aforeffortcast at gmail.com. And please subscribe and leave a review for the show on iTunes. And tell your friends that you did. (laughs) Tell your friends that you did that, but not to subscribe. No, we want to keep it as, as few people as possible. <laughs> Real tight-knit group. Like a, like five people who just love it. <laughs> See you in two weeks. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Any yes. links? Here, give me one second when we'll I do. find the specific name of this book. Cool. And that's by Emma Brigden. <laughs> <laughs>